0: Howdy, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. You know, medievalism is coming back in a big, big way. What do I
1: mean? Stacy. I have no idea. But I will tell you something that we do see continuing all these bubbles around the world and the interventions from the Fed. The Fed keeps on intervening as we've been talking about since uh, September, October of 2019 in the repo markets. It's expanding. It's expanding. And you know what else is expanding? Because everybody is looking at and waiting for a market crash. And they've been, of course, waiting for this market crash to happen for the past few years years and never comes. It never comes. But here's an interesting indicator. And this is one that I know that you were involved with with uh, Karma Bank a long time ago, uh, 17, 18 years ago. And that was the price to sales ratio, because this is an interesting one to look at. The price to sales ratio in the S&P 500, which is currently 2.4, is the highest in Bloomberg data history going back to
0: 1990. Right. Stock price uh, has a multiple of sales. Right, so Coca-Cola does a dollar in sale and the stocks at five dollars it's trading at five times sales. Right? So it's an indicator that gives you an indication of where stocks are valuation-wise, historically. Price earnings ratio is also one looked at. Price to book is another one to look at. What I mean by medievalism, and I think we're heading into this, is that the metrics that are used to measure stock valuations are meaningless in the 21st century when you have 0% interest rates effectively and you have unlimited credit available to what under Theodore Roosevelt in American history would have been called monopolies. But continue.
1: Well, of course, I would say that the Fed are, like in medieval times, They're supposedly the ones that have all the knowledge. They have a special book that nobody else can read. There's no printing press. There's no ability to read and understand and sit in a room and read this knowledge and share it allegedly. But what they're doing to what they see is wrong is money printing, which is the equivalent of putting a leech on somebody's head or drilling a hole in it and, and putting the leech on top of it and trying to suck out the spirits, the evil spirits. And in terms of what the Fed has done and whether or not it's, you know, we are in bubble territory or who's driving who. Remember, I keep on saying what came first, the chicken or the Fed, because if you look at this chart of Apple and Tesla, you know, they were going up and down, sometimes in tandem, sometimes not, until da, 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 when the Fed started intervening in the repo market. And now you see them. That's a genuine parabolic move that they've had since then, um, as you know, uh, Apple... <laughs> a huge corporation, the biggest in the world, or the second biggest, uh, doubled in a year. So that's unusual to double from a large size company like that, but it has along with uh, Tesla. So either their fundamentals are exactly the same and their uh, their CEOs are doing something uniquely interesting and and creating uh, wealth possibilities and a future that looks bright equally at the same time, or perhaps the Fed is doing this.
0: Right. In the case of Apple, the biggest company in the world, at $1.4 trillion, they are engrossing they are engrossing themselves out on the free money that they get from the central bank to buy back their own stock yes. and they're becoming bigger than many nation states and there are now only 4 or 5 of these huge mega corporations and again my theme of medievalism you have these fiefdoms you have kingships you have the ter- the, the lands of apple and the land of tesla and the land of google and people who live outside of the gates of these castles are serfs are nomads are without anything they In San Francisco, they're literally getting medieval diseases like typhus and defecating and open defecation in the street. This is the medievalism. This is what I call neo-feudalism. And it's now happening at an accelerated rate.
1: Again, here is the Fed intervention, what they're creating with their, you know, putting leeches on the global financial system. Perhaps it's working. They seem to think it's working. But on the other side, you might look at this sort of information I'm about to tell you and think, Oh, my God, you've got to take these leeches off. Big companies have never dominated the S&P 500 like they do now. Top five, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, now make up a record 18% share of the benchmark cap thanks to monopolistic rents.
0: Right, and I I believe that no metric... Measuring this the valuation of the stock market applies anymore. When you have those four or five companies, they've got 18 percent of the overall market capitalization that number will go to 80 percent,, I predict, in the next five years, because we are heading toward a neo-feudal period where those top five companies and some private equity firms and a few like BlackRock, own everything. The entire stock market and bond market is being taken private with free money.
1: And the result will be medievalism, neo-feudalism. It's clear as day. Well, they do say something like over 40% of companies on the S&P 500, i.e. Those, not those top five, they have, they're zombies, essentially. If it weren't for the Fed's free money, they would disappear. They would be gone. They would be out of business. But I think part of what this, all this intervention is, is... Again, crowd control as perception. They need to pretend like there are 500 companies. What are they going to have the S&P 5? Yes, you know? but that is indeed the fact. However, we need the illusion. We need the audience. We need the population to believe that we all could possibly be in the S&P 500, that there is competition, we do have capitalism, and therefore they need to have 500 companies survive. So that's why they pretend that those companies, that's part of why they have to intervene and put all these leeches on the economy to make it look like there is indeed some sort of capitalism and competition. And of course, as you and I have talked about for, since moving back here and having to subject ourselves to Obamacare and note that we're on this ACA marketplace, it's called a marketplace, but there's only one provider for health insurance in many states. And we're going to look at another story related to this macabre system where it's all a Potemkin economy. It's not really there. It's not. There is no competition. There is nothing real there. Uh, High deductible plans jeopardize financial health of patients and rural hospitals. According to the nonprofit National Rural Health Association, bad debt for rural hospitals has gone up about 50% since the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Why has this happened? because of the high deductibles. And we'll get to that in a second. People in rural America were buying plans, maybe for the first time, but buying plans they couldn't afford, said Maggie Elwany, the Group's Vice President for Government Affairs and Policy. The plans seemed to make sense at the time until they got sick. So what happens with these rural hospitals is that these people have $10,000 deductibles out in, say, uh, somewhere in Wyoming or the Dakotas or Colorado, remote areas. And the rural hospitals are not equipped to deal with huge, major catastrophic injury in a car accident or a heart attack situation. What they do is they get the patient gets brought there to the rural hospital, they stabilize the person so they survive for the next hour or two. Then they transport them to a big city hospital, which has the facilities. Well, the first hospital to see them gets stuck with the deductible, the $10,000 deductible, the insurance company pays for anything over $10,000, i.e. the big city hospital. The first hospital, the rural hospital, has to rely on the patient to have that $10,000, and chances are they're not going to get paid.
0: All right. So these rural hospitals are collapsing. Yes. So healthcare is collapsing. Infant mortality goes up. Life expectancy in America goes down. Opioid addiction goes up. Suicide rates go up because private private equity has gotten into the healthcare business and they are the biggest leeches of all and they will suck every penny out of everyone's orifice until they're all dead, and there'll be sudden collapse. But you see it in the statistics. People, I see the news all the time where people say there's a temporary uh, fall in America's life expectancy over the past three years. They keep saying, oh, it's a temporary fall. No, it's, it's an institutionalized permanent fall in life expectancy because you're promoting suicide and private equity to kill your population. So it's permanent, you freaking idiot.
1: It's also, okay, a mis... <sighs> Like it's neoliberalism. What neoliberalism is a market will solve every single thing, and it has to be a market and a market pricing, all this sort of stuff. So, what you have in um, the financial markets, what's happening is the Fed is saying, you consumers are not spending enough, so therefore we're going to punish you. We're going to have repressive tax rates, uh, uh, inflation rates. Also, we're going to have negative interest rates. We're going to take your money. It's going to cost you more money. If you save even a thousand bucks, it's not worth it. Just go spend it. Um, And it it causes uh, negative side effects. Here the same thing is Obama really, really genuinely believed in creating these marketplaces, even despite he could see the fact that it was only one provider in the entire area. And he believed fervently, and he and his McKinsey sort of consultants working for him, designing Obamacare, they met with the insurance companies. And what they said is a very high deductible will make consumers really active consumers. They'll go shopping around for the best cost and all this sort of stuff. Well, as these rural hospitals are showing, when you show up in a coma, it's very, very difficult to negotiate prices. It's very difficult to, uh, you know, while you're, they're pumping your heart, trying to stabilize you while you're having a heart attack. Who are you? How much are you costing? Like, you, you, what are you putting into me? Wait, do you have a cheaper supplier? Like you don't know how, you can't do that in that situation. So these high deductibles are in fact not causing people in heart attacks, having strokes, accidents, any of these sort of life threatening, such, they are not turning them into brilliant consumers.
0: Right, right. The word there being neoliberalism. Yes. Right? So this is the, this idea that really, I guess from Milton Friedman forward uh, under the Reagan Thatcher doctrine, that markets are... Uh, sacrosanct. And we entered a period of what we call market fundamentalism, because it became similar to religious fundamentalism, that uh, Americans would believe in the sanctity of markets um, above all else, and that there was nothing else. on. They worshipped price price discovery, uh, even though this price discovery was driven by monopolists, predators, shady bankers, hedge funds and Ben Bernanke, right? Just the worst car- cast of characters you could possibly assemble in one place and not in the, without it being actually the opposite of heaven. And um, the result is predictably horrible.
1: So 120 rural hospitals have gone out of business in the last three years. Most of them are in the loser states, deplorables, all those places that Hillary said are the losers. Um, again, this is a cycle of you know, your policies don't work. So blame the victim of your policies. You know, we put a leech on your on your financial system, and we've destroyed it, and we drilled a hole in it, and it's all leaking out. All your wealth, all your life force is leaking out to Manhattan and, and San Francisco and L.A., and uh, you're the loser for this. Uh, according to the woman they're interviewing here from uh, the Government and Affairs Policy for National Rural national rural health association the exchanges have never worked the way they were envisioned she said the goal was for you to go on your computer and it's going to be like buying an airline ticket and just shopping around for what makes sense for you there's no shopping in rural America you have one choice people
0: are notoriously stupid when it comes to making economic decisions in the short term uh, this is what drives folks to, to make bad consumer choices which is the essential component of the american economy with seventy percent bad consumer choices which has led to the opiate addiction, the life expectancy crisis, the infant mortality crisis, and the ecological crisis. So let's apply that faulty logic to healthcare so that people will voluntarily make bad choices in the short term about their healthcare on top of all the other bad choices they're making in the short term. Thanks, Obama.
1: The bad choices is evident in the fact that one in four dollars in our overpriced system is spent on diabetes, and most of that diabetes, you know, some of it is caused by genetic, you know, people were born with diabetes type one, but diabetes type two, which is brought on by obesity and bad choices about food, Um, Again, partly because of all the subsidies and the interventions in the market which caused an oversupply of corn, which now we have corn syrup in every single thing because there was too much production of that. But these are the bad choices that lead to a single supplier marketplace. I mean, it's it's everybody's acting like we don't see the Wizard of Oz that he's just a guy behind a screen. Like that, nobody seems to mention in all these Democratic debates, for example, that there's just one provider. Like, how is that a marketplace? Why are we not calling out this Potemkin economy? Well, we're gonna take a break.
0: Hey, Don't forget to uh, drive by your local grocery store and pick up a bag of Max's Leeches, nine ninety-five. It's a great deal. Stay tuned for the second half coming right your way. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to return to our conversation with Chris Martinson of peakprosperity.com. Chris, welcome back, back. Thanks. It's good to be back, Max. All righty. Now, let's talk about your career a little bit. You started off as a biologist. So your thoughts on what is happening in terms of the apparent collapse in the number of insects? The absence of splatter on windshields, for example, is any guide. We did a couple of cross-country country road trips in the last couple of years. And uh, the only state where you saw a uh, bug splatter were states where they were not using Monsanto. But uh, can you comment on what's happening with the, uh, the Holocaust of insects happening right now? Yeah,
2: I, I'd be glad to, and I'm sad to. You know, I'm of an age where I remember that if you left your porch light on, in August and you woke up in the morning, your screen was covered with like this prehistoric menagerie, you know, it was almost scary, huge things, moths and beetles and all that, they're all gone. And, uh, you know, people who are younger may not know that because they didn't have that same baseline of of remembering. And so what's happening here, I've been writing about this since at least 2015, I put an article out about how it's the neonicotinoids, it's a class of pesticides, they're highly persistent, a farmer sprays them on, it has a half-life of a thousand days. So that means when you know 365 days passes and you're using it again, there's still a bunch in the soil. It accumulates. It's not an insecticide; it's a biocide. If birds get too much in their system, they die. It's a really nasty compound, and it's everywhere you see it's been used prevalently. Insect populations have plummeted, and uh, and it's just awful. So that's really um, Syngenta and Bayer are, are the ones, and I guess now Monsanto got bought by Bayer. So. They're the ones who peddle this stuff, it's awful. Farmers say to me, you know, I get angry emails whenever I write about it, because I call it lazy farming. Uh, and, And let me tell you how bad this stuff, this is why I call it lazy. If you coat a kernel of corn with this stuff, by the time that corn seed sprouts and becomes a full plant, it is toxic enough from what it's absorbed from that coating, it's toxic enough as an adult plant that any insect that munches on it dies, right? So that's how toxic this stuff is. And uh, farmers say, oh, Chris, you know, you don't understand if we didn't have that, we'd go out of business. And I'm thinking, well, how did we get to 2008 when those things got introduced on a mass scale? Must have used something else, right? So it's really silent spring again. It's DDT. It's awful. As a biologist, I will tell you this. Wiping out the bottom of the food chain is a very bad idea. I mean, that shouldn't, you know, you don't have to be a biologist to understand that. But it's rippled all the way through. It's down on the birds. I can tell you anecdotally, my bird feeder, which I always have a couple running, plus a suet feeder, I have maybe 10% of the birds I had last year because we got wiped out, no insects, and uh, just, you know, one mosquito. I even feel bad slapping mosquitoes now. They're like, everything's rare. This is just one more thing that, as you mentioned, people can notice when they're driving, you don't get the splat on the windshields anymore. In fact, you can drive often hundreds and hundreds of miles and have no insect strikes in the middle of summer on your windshield. That's really bad. That's part of the thing that gives me that pit in my stomach.
0: Scientists have allegedly created some sort of robot out of genetic materials of a frog. And are we destined to be evil frog robots? Ha ha. Uh, Pepe the frog made made big, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and robots, Chris?
2: Well, you know, maybe there's some, some uh, <laughs> There's hope in this story that if we did actually create AI that was smart enough, we could set it loose and tell us what to do, because AI can handle things that are more complex than human brains can really grok. And so we might not like the results, though. AI may come forward and say, hey, growing cotton in the Arizona deserts is a dumb idea. You have to stop, right? Um, And it may tell us uh, that real estate in Phoenix uh, doesn't make sense anymore because of the groundwater. It'll tell us things that should be obvious, you know, maybe. But uh, I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to do the things that I call techno fantasy utopia, where people go, Chris, we lose all the bees, we can make little drone bees. And I'm thinking, well, well, who's going to be plugging in and repowering a billion little bees every night so they can go around the next day? It's just, it's just silly. It's fantasy time. Instead, we should be talking about how we shouldn't be wiping out the bees in the first place. I know a lot of people have concern about that, but people don't know what to do about it. And that's why everything we do at Peak Prosperity says it's up to us, the individuals. Can't wait for them, they, uh, Big Brother, the whole government to figure any of this out for us. It's time for us to get involved and do what we can. And there's a lot we can do. And that's the good news. So, uh, you know, I don't know where else to start in this story besides there.
0: Right. Well, on a positive note, even I think it's clear that even when humans become extinct in the next 20 years or so, Uh, Our avatars will continue. So the Max and Stacy avatar will still be doing the Kaiser Report in cyberspace uh, for AI robots for their amusement. You know, the humans will be gone. But that's how the whole continuum continues on from the original uh, burst of life, wherever that came from. So, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and other billionaires are seeking to go off planet, uh, possibly Mars, uh, possibly Australia. What do you think they see up there?
2: Well, I think they see some sort of hope and salvation that if we wreck this spaceship, humans have an escape valve and maybe we'll live on Mars. My retort to that would be if you can't make this place work, uh, good luck making Mars work any better. I mean, this is the most forgiving, most wonderful, most abundant uh, spaceship you could ever want to have. Planet Earth is is highly robust and and enduring. And uh, if we can't work it out here, trust me, we're not going to work it out anywhere else. Maybe more waggishly, I would say, if you really think Mars is an awesome idea, there is a valley in Antarctica, which is just as cold and just as dry. I invite people to go spend a couple weeks there and come on back and report how awesome that experience was. And then we'll find out if Mars is a good idea or not.
0: Right. Well, uh, I'm not hopeful that there will be many lessons learned. I mean, after all, we were told explicitly from the indigenous population here in America what would happen if we continue to do what we were gonna do for the next 200 years. Uh, they were right, uh, we committed massive uh, suicide. Anyway, uh, it's been fun um, being a human. Now, aside from their blog posts, what, what is, what's available at peakprosperity.com? I see you have a seminar coming up in May. Tell us more about this.
2: Well, this is where, you know, you and I, we've been talking a lot of problem definition. What's the solution? What do you do? So that three-day seminar, May 1st, 2nd, 3rd, that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, out in Sebastopol, very nice in May out there. Uh, We talk about what you can do about all of this. We talk about eight forms of capital, financial capital, how to protect it, grow it. It's just one form. So is social capital, emotional capital, things like that. And we've got a really great lineup of guests this year, the best ever. Uh, we got Mike Maloney coming on board. We also have Peter Boghossian, who wrote, uh, he's a professor, he wrote, how to have impossible conversations, which is something that everybody needs to have a conversation about these days, and a whole lineup of other people: Charles Hugh Smith, Richard Heinberg, uh, John Rubino, a lot of, lot of great guests. So it's a wonderful time, and uh, it's where people can uh, have conversations like we're having, and uh, with other very successful people, and not feel like uh, you know you're talking to somebody who's who's about to walk away from you thinking you're nuts. So it's a great it's a great time. It always fills up and uh, really looking forward to that because I love spending time with that tribe of people.
0: All right. So, so bringing it back to economics here, you talk about self-sovereignty and, uh, you know, in, in the mix, you have to talk about gold, right? Gold is uh, a way to, for folks to have self-sovereignty and to have savings based on something that they can trade. So uh, is gold still in the mix of how one becomes self-sovereign?
2: Well, it is. And I think the theme for this next 10 years that I've been writing about is really it's hard assets. Gold and silver represent wonderful hard assets. So I guess we have to include palladium and platinum and, and all those other things in there now, too. But as well, I think productive real estate and land, my, my larger thesis is I think this next decade, uh, Max and Stacy, I think this is going to be the back, the largest back to the land movement. In our country's history larger than the Oklahoma land rush of 1873 more than the hippies in the 60s going out and you know scratching uh, some carrots into the dirt this is going to be a really big back to the land movement driven by a lot of need for people to get out of uh, city environments for a variety of reasons that I talk about but this is that's my thesis Uh, I I could be wrong but I'm not confused I see this being uh, the time when people understand finally this infinite growth thing isn't a viable option and the conclusion you come to with that is, uh, maybe I should have some land and some connection back to nature and growing things and a deeper sense of community. Those are the things I think are going to drive this.
0: But, but how do we avoid this, uh, what seems like the inevitability of really emerging as a society based on that film Idiocracy, where people are watering their lawns with Gatorade and the, uh, the, the accumulated wisdom of the culture and society has been lost to massive stupidity. And people don't even know how to how to grow a carrot anymore. It's lost, and they and it's just we we just die of stupidity. I mean, I think that's that's like a that's a pretty substantially high and real risk, Chris.
2: Well, it is not. I don't know what to do about it across the whole culture. I am personally involved in uh, acquiring a, a center, an event center that can hold a, a 150 or so people, and we're going to be having regenerative agriculture happening there and we're gonna have a place where people can come and learn you know maybe people from Brooklyn come up and collect an egg out of a chicken coop and watch it cooked and understand you know that's how, how breakfast gets made so uh, I think this is what needs to happen Is we do need that reskilling I'm doing something about it all of the people in our tribe are doing things about it on their end as well at home learning how to garden learn how to grow how to how to fix and, and and build things again that sort of maker community by the way A lot of young people are going that route as well, so I'm really encouraged to see that happening.
0: Right. Uh, One final point here. You write that one good thing about the Fed is destroys our future. It's inadvertently giving us one precious resource. Elaborate on this. We've got about 30 seconds.
2: It's giving us time. All of this market propping and all of this is just a little bit more time. I want people to use that time wisely, understand it will end when it ends. Where are you going to be? What's it going to look like? It could be uglier than 2008. Are you ready for that? There's a lot of goodness that comes with these uh, kicking the can down the road, but you need to be ready for when it ends.
0: Right. Well, uh, that sounds interesting enough and look forward to seeing you at the event, possibly. Thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. Excellent. Glad to hear you might be there. (laughs) All right. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report. With me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert, I'd like to thank our guest, Chris Martinson of Peak prosperity.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time. Bye, y'all.